Welcome to Why Knowledge Matters. In this episode, Professor Joseph Levitin joins me to discuss his paper, Collaboratively Developing Culturally Granted Curriculum with Marginalized Communities. And very interesting, he joins us directly from Peru, where he actually conducted this study and published it in the American Journal of Education in 2020. Yeah, it's great to be here, Yannick. Uh, it's, it's, I'm really excited to talk to you about this. And it's actually great. I'm right on the way to a town called Acomayo in Peru, where we're going to be speaking with the UGEL, which is also known as a school board, about making um, culturally grounded education a reality here through a virtual interactive process. Um, so it's actually a very exciting time um, now, and uh, it's great to to talk to you about this stuff while I'm here. So we can check out the town of Acomayo. That sounds wonderful. I can't wait to start the conversation with you, Joe. To start with, give us some context how you started working in Peru and especially in such a remote community. Yeah, um, so when I was in college, I had a good friend who was a roommate of mine who ended up um, being very close with a, a family in the town of Sokma, which is a rural community um, up at the top of a mountain in the Sacred Valley, what's called the Sacred Valley of Cusco. So Cusco is here, and then there's this, what's called the Sacred Valley or the Urubamba Valley. And he was uh, in, in Quechua culture, there are multiple godparents and he was the godparent of education. And so when his goddaughter wanted to go to school, to go to secondary school, which there weren't any, she really asked for his help. And he wasn't working in education, but I was. And so he asked me to come down and try to help out and figure out what we were gonna do to make sure that his goddaughter and other students like her would get access to education. So I was kind of asked to come down, I was invited, um, and uh, it kind of just blossomed from there. I started to meet people, had a lot of conversations, ate a lot of meals together, and just trying to figure out what it was that the community and the students really wanted, and then how could we make that happen? Um, and there are a lot of challenges in the rural proving Andes when it comes to education. Uh, the curriculum is not designed or um, prepared for students who speak Quechua as a first language, for example, which is the indigenous language in, in the Peruvian Andes and, and other parts of the Andes. And there aren't many secondary schools. They're mostly in larger towns and, and there are you know dozens and dozens of com communities that are up in the mountains and you have to walk three, four, five, up to even eight hours to get access to near a secondary school that's in the student's district. So there are a lot of issues, you know, from curriculum, teachers who are going out there who may not be prepared to teach these students in particular, uh, materials that aren't adapted to their culture and just distance. Um, so there's a lot of material, epistemological and practical issues that students are facing in the Andes. And not to, you know, and this was happening in 2010 with COVID, it's gotten even worse. So we can talk about that a little bit, but uh, we have some other things to talk about first, I think. Yeah, absolutely. There are so many, obviously, complexities that, you know, that come further, you know, let alone, as you just mentioned, COVID. 
I would just uh, briefly give an overview and correct me if I if I interpreted uh, some of your studies, uh, you know, not the, the correct way. But really the paper, what it tries to address, it's the decision-making process for culturally responsive curriculum to ground the decision-making process in a community's culture. It is a process-oriented approach to include community voices. In your paper, you call it culturally grounded curriculum, building on CRC in which learning goals are grounded in community values. In other words, how people know based on their culture and its context. Culture, you are very clear, is relative. So you, you, you propose a cultural relativism and it depends on context. Now, important, you know, just to get this out of the way, there's a critical difference between moral and cultural relativism. Can you make, please uh, give us uh, an explanation what the differences are? Sure. Um, so moral relativism is in, it, in its most extreme form, saying that what happens in one space with one community or one person is okay if it is okay with that person. And that is, so morality is relative. So if you have things like honor killings in one community, people might say that that's okay um, because it's honor killings in one culture. But it's not really the culture that's talking about that. That's not the morality of it. The morality of it is something that happens amongst people. And when it's amongst people, it needs to be intersubjective. So actually, I think the argument for moral relativism is very problematic because morality is not just an individual act. It is an act in a community. Cultural relativism, on the other hand, basically means that you need to respect the cultural norms and values of the communities in which you're working or your own community or the other intersubjective things that are happening when it comes to things that aren't necessarily about morals. I mean, sometimes there are gonna be some gray areas. There's a lot of gray areas in life, right? But cultural relativism means honoring and respecting people. Moral relativism on the other hand means not thinking about communities, but thinking about individuals having their own relativistic sense of morality where somebody can say, well, it's moral to me, so it's moral, which is not okay. And so there's a big difference between moral relativism and cultural relativism. Um, I also don't think that we're talking in this paper about cultural relativism as much as we're talking about the role of building intersubjective understandings with people from different cultures and honoring and respecting people who have different cultures. And that's different than cultural relativism necessarily because it's really about building community and thinking about things in a way that is collaborative, that is based on relationships, that is based on mutual understanding. And this kind of skirts all of that, you know, so some of the things I just said were a little bit problematic, but that's because it skirts all of that because that whole debate I think is actually flawed. The important thing is, is in life, instead of in theory, which is one of the things that we're gonna talk about later, in life, it's about building respect, positive relationships, you know, having people understand each other, making sure that the different identities and values and cultures within any given space 
are honored and understood. And that's different than thinking about cultural relativism or moral relativism, I think. So let's dive a little bit into your method and how you pursued, uh, pursued it to study. You were also very clear that you guided all the participants. So you didn't, you know, basically it wasn't free flow, but you clearly with your experiences and with your team, you helped them guiding through uh, the process. Can you elaborate a little bit more on how this process looked like in practice? Sure. So one of the, in practice, one of the things that we did at this particular um, uh, learning space was that every Wednesday we had a seminar style conversation where students would bring up problems or questions or issues that they had, um, things that they were thinking about, things that they wanted to know more about and we would have a conversation. And so the students would drive the question posing, but sometimes the students would ask questions where we knew the answers. You know, some, some questions have very concrete answers, you know, like, how do I get to this school? I can give you directions, that's a concrete answer. And I know that, and the person needed to figure it out. And so they asked me, and so I answered. And that kind of dynamic is gonna be guided, right? Um, you know, if I say something along the lines of, how do I get to this school? And I say, well, that's a good question. Why don't we explore that together? Why don't you go out and, and go look for the school? Even though I know the answer, that would seem kind of rude. So one of the things when you're in an educative dynamic, you know, when you're somebody who has had more experience than somebody else who's growing up, who's younger, sometimes there are going to be answers that you can offer. And sometimes you're going to know um, some of the things that need to happen in terms of how to make sure that the, the communicative space is a safe one, is a one where people can express their feelings in an open and authentic, sincere manner. And there are ways that uh, somebody who's sensitive to, and teachers are often sensitive, not all teachers, but a lot of teachers are sensitive to the dynamics that are happening between students when they're sitting around talking about issues. And so, it's important for the teacher when things start to go off course to help correct it, you know, little nudges, little pe bringing people back to what are we actually talking about instead of, you know, instead of having it go out of control. So that was part of the guidance that we did. It was really just to make sure that things maintained a kind of productive and respectful tone while also deal digging into and dealing with some challenging topics. Um, but and what ended up happening with the process is during these many, many Socratic, we called them Socratic seminars, um, was that, and it's probably a misnomer, it's probably not the right term for it, but I like the term Socratic seminar, because it was really just kind of a, a round, you know, everybody was just kind of talking around. Um, and one of the big issues that kept coming up with the students was what their goals and dreams are. And not, and it took a while before students really were feeling safe to express what they really wanted to do. Um, you know, first it was, well, I want to get an education. It's like, well, what do you want to get an education for? Well, I want to get an education so I can salir adelante, which is the title of this article. Okay, so what does salir adelante mean? I mean, this is kind of the Socratic seminar, right? So I was like, Okay, so we're, we're starting to get somewhere, but you got to dig a little deeper, right? That's what we're going to be doing here, two of us. So as we started to dig deeper, 
One, we realized that students had this idea that being a professional was how to salir adelante. And we thought that was really interesting. Um, we also asked the students, what does it mean to be a professional? And most of them said, well, it's what happens when you wear a suit and you earn a salary. And, you know, they didn't really have a, a clear understanding because why would they? They're from rural communities and, and the high Andes. They're down in a secondary school and it's the first time they've seen people who are considered professionals. So, you know, it's, this was a, a great moment to explore this with them. And it was really an exploration of their values and what it was that they were looking for so that we could be responsive to what they really wanted because that was really the goal. But one of the things that happens when you're an academic or when you're an educator, or if you're just a human, is you come with a whole lot of theoretical baggage in the back of your head. And one of the things that uh, us as humans with our theoretical baggage do is we often misinterpret what other people say. And when you're dealing and when you're working with uh, communities that have been marginalized or oppressed and you're dealing with the legacies of colonialism and how that has impacted people, you have a lot, you have a very tricky road to walk, right? Because you know that the government and what is considered to be the dominant culture has not allowed the people who make up these communities to have access to some of the goods and, and services that they want. You also know that there's a sense of, and a history of epistemological harm because they are being told that they're lesser than. So you have this big tension in terms of how do you interpret what these students are saying based on the theoretical baggage that you're coming with. So that's, I mean, that's the, you know, that's kind of how it happened. Um, I realized that I had theoretical baggage that I was bringing with me when students said, I want to be a professional. And I want, need to reflect on that. And my co-author, uh, Kayla, also was thinking about, you know, what does this mean? Like, what do we do with this information? Because it's really, really important information. But what do we do with this? How do we, how do we be responsive and listen in a good way? Um, in an ethical way, in a moral way. You know, I'm not a fan of moral relativism, for example. Um, so that, that was the question. And then another question that came on top of that is what, is what does social justice mean for these students in this time in this space? And when it comes to being a professional, we had to explore the underlying and underpinning values that the students were talking about. So that's what we started to do with the students because you know, one of the things that we as humans have in ourselves is sometimes we don't really know what our values are until we start to explore them, right? I know that I have thought something or I thought I really wanted something. And then when I got it, I realized I didn't want it anymore. And actually it was not good. Like I thought it was going to be great, but it wasn't good. It could have been a candy bar. It could have been a job. It could have been anything, but there are all kinds of things that I thought I wanted and I didn't want. And there are other things that I thought I knew that when I explored them, I didn't know. And so I know that happens to other people as well. And so one of the things that is important when you are learning oriented is to make sure that you are exploring what it is that you think you know, because there are gonna be things that you don't know as well. And so thinking that you know something is almost more dangerous than knowing that you don't know something. And that was one of the what reasons why we decided to do this meta theoretical work on this article to understand how different theories think they know things 
And that becomes danger, dangerous, and that becomes a problem because if we only interpret what the students are saying from one lens, like a post-colonial lens saying that to be a professional means that the students have colonized minds is problematic. But also from a development lens to say, to be a professional means that the students want to be exactly like the, you know, a US business person or lawyer or, you know, a westernized person is also problematic. Both of these things are problematic. And both of these things are going to potentially harm these students because we're still trying to learn this together. And we're trying to recreate our cultural dynamics and our dynamics as people into a way that's socially just, that's respectful, and that allows students to explore in a positive way, in a growth-oriented way, what it is that they value and how that is enacted in life. I know I just said a lot there, but... Uh... So let's look a little bit on your interpretative uh, framework, or, you know, I think you can also call it a methodology. It's basically, you know, the theory behind, you know, the method or like the, the findings or how you interpret the findings, right? And yeah. so what you put forward in order to do this comparison and to actually illuminate that it can be very problematic, you apply human capital theory and post-colonial theory. Can you just quickly elaborate on the two? Sure. So human capital theory, um, which has a lot, I mean, there are a lot of authors who've talked about human capital theory. Um, well, we can post them in, uh, in the notes for this episode. Um, really thinks about a capitalistic model where people have their own resources there and they can develop their resources. So education is a way to build human capital because human capital is seen as the skills and knowledge to create economic returns. So human capital means, you know, if I, you know, it's, it's similar to, um, you know, the old phrase of, you know, if you give a, a person a fish, they'll eat for a day. If you teach a person a, to fish, they'll eat for life or they'll make a fish stand and they'll start to sell their fish and then they can eat more than just fish, right? That's kind of the human capital theory. Um, Post-colonial theory is a critique of the histories of colonial domination from primarily European countries um, that colonized and dominated the Americas um, from you know, the 1400s on, the end of the 1400s, 1500s on. And the policies and the perspectives of the people who colonized the Americas was you know, not only highly problematic, but it, their actions were incredibly violent. Um, it was, you know, a, a, tra a tragic history of violence and murder and abuse and things like that. And that legacy lives on today because trauma is intergenerational. And these are some very serious legacies that continue on today in terms of the ways in which certain languages are valued over others. You know, English is a worldwide language now. That happened because of the colonial legacy of the British imperial work that they did in the, in the Americas and Australia, throughout Africa. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that happened. All of these traumatic things that occurred have left systems and policies in which the people who are Western generally have more privileges and rights and uh, opportunities than people who are not. And so we have to think about what does that mean for students who are 
living in rural remote communities who don't have access to healthcare, who don't have access to a dentist, who don't have access to um, language that speaks to their own language. You know, they, their first, most of these students are first language casual speakers, but they have to go to school in Spanish. So post-colonial theory critiques all of this. And it says, okay, so we live in a quote unquote post-colonial world because technically Peru is an independent country now. It is not part of Spain, but we're still living with this legacy. And so how do we decolonize some of the problematic things that are happening? And a lot of it is critiquing the colonial norms that have happened. So post-colonial theory often has this epistemological bent to it in which the norms and ideas and values of the West, which are fraught throughout um, the Americas, are put in juxtaposition with the traditional values and ways of being of you know, First Nations, Indigenous, uh, Inuit, and, and other communities um, that were here before the colonizers came. And so disentangling the dramatic and problematic versus and affirming and reaffirming and honoring and bringing, you know, bringing to equality or equity or justice some of the histories is really the focus of post-colonial theory. One of the problems with post-colonial theory is that it often romanticizes and sometimes is blinded by this critique to not be critical about other things that are going on in the world today. And so theory, because it is not contextualized, you know, it is very easy to say this history happened and this is a problem. But what does that history mean in a lived reality today? And how do we understand that? And how do we not romanticize or blind ourselves to who these students are now, what's going on now, and what their values and needs really are now? And so this juxtaposition between human capital theory and post-colonial theory allows us to have that tension, allows us to live the tension between these two theories that could one could recolonize or colonize the communities, or one could oppress the communities in its effort to be liberatory. And you don't want to oppress in the name of liberation. You want liberation. And so if, you have, if you're stuck in a theory, you might not be able to have that liberatory outcome that you're hoping for. And that's really the crux of this argument in this article. And then we lay out a way out of this tension by trying to listen and have the students start to do more of the directive agential aspects of what their education is gonna be. And we're gonna be responsive to that. And we're gonna think it through with them, but we're not gonna impose these theoretical norms or frameworks. We're not gonna impose the idea of grades, for example, which can be very problematic in a lot of schools. But we're gonna think about what does it mean to evaluate? What does it mean to learn together and figure that out together instead of saying, well, we're not gonna have any grades or no evaluation. That doesn't work either. But we're not also gonna have this like, here's this, you know, here's this number and that number is your worth. There's more than those, just those two options, but those two options are usually what people think about because that's the theoretical baggage that we come with. Joe, it's always great and enlightening to have you on the show. Really, thank you so much for yeah, uh, your great. elaboration on your uh, wonderful paper. And uh, I really can tell that this will give insight to any ed educator, you know, whether in North America and uh, obviously throughout the world. Thanks, Yannick, and great. Thank you for your great questions and your thoughtful engagement with the paper. It's really, um, you know, you, you write a paper 
and you don't know who's going to read it or how they're going to read it. It's really nice to um, engage with somebody who's so thoughtful and, and so critical too. You know, I, you didn't like, you know, you didn't hold back in terms of saying like, oh, what about this? This could be problematic when we were talking before. And I really appreciate that about how you engage with um, mm. with the things that people do and, and how I was writing this and how Kayla was writing this. Joseph Levitan. 